0: Welcome to the podcast of Calvary Baptist Church of Taylorville, Illinois. I hope this podcast stirs your desire for the things of God and we hope that your faith in Christ will grow like never before. Now let's get into the podcast. I invite you now just as a sign of belief. Sometimes when I pray, I literally have my hands out like this just to kind of set my body in the same posture of my heart to receive God. And if you'd be so inclined to do so, And if you would be willing to do so, I just ask that you do this as we pray. Father God, we just come to you today. And God, we just come to you with hearts ready to receive. Ready to receive whatever it is that you have for us. God, I pray that you would just use your word and that you would just use this feeble preacher, God, just to do an amazing work. God, I pray that it would be your spirit that is just impacting people's lives today. Impacting people's lives in ways that, that maybe they never saw coming. God, surprised by joy, surprised by peace, surprised by you, Jesus. And I pray, God, that in all of these things, that you would be so glorified and that you would just bring us into your presence today in a special way. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, while you're standing, why don't you look at your neighbor and say, hey, I've got my armor. Do you have yours? And y'all act like this is a family reunion or something, seriously, come on, y'all about to bust out a three-legged race or something in here, I don't even know, it's good though isn't it, is it good, all right, I need y'all to help me preach today, okay, I need y'all a little bit, so so we are like so deep into this series and we have one more week starting next week and I'm so glad That through just the plan of God that we land on this topic, talking about the helmet of salvation on this day. And I'll tell you the reason why. Not just this day particularly, but as it lines out in the scriptures, because the Apostle Paul has unpacked a lot of things for us to be where we are in this passage. And the reason why that I believe this is so impactful, at least it is for me, maybe it won't be for you, is because I believe that in, in the Christian world, in many churches, there, there are people who are spiritual streakers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Here's what I mean. A spiritual streaker is this. All they have on is the helmet of salvation and nothing else. They don't have anything else. They have nothing else to base their life upon, but they're just spiritual streakers, and they're like, no, I'm saved, and they know the, they know the day and the verse, and they know the thing, the Romans Road, and I got saved here, and it was with my grandma, and she helped me, and then my, my mom came next to me and doing all these things, and that's amazing how you got saved, but, but here's the thing. The Apostle Paul has worked so far in this passage to get to the helmet of salvation, and hopefully that you have been Donning the armor up to this point so we aren't spiritual streakers that all we do is claim a salvation and yet we don't know how to live the life that Jesus has for us and we're not changed by the way that the spirit of God wants us to change so this is the difficulty when in in the Christian life because many times we give each other a pass. We do, and we're like, hey, brother, hey, sister, and maybe we know when they are baptized or, or we've been in church for so long, and yet we're not actually looking at one another to see if we're growing in Christlikeness. For some folks in here today, you're going you're gonna to have an aha moment. I, just, I believe it. I've been praying about it. I'm just trusting God. You're going to have an aha moment. Anybody ready for an aha moment this morning? Raise your hand if you're ready for that. Maybe that'll be true of you. I pray that that the Spirit of God will be sneaking up on you in in the midst of my preaching and and just the power of God's Word and sneak up on you and just ambush you by His grace. I pray that that happens to you, through you, and ultimately for you. We're going to be in Ephesians 6. You knew that already, though, didn't you? Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18 is what we're going to read. Don't try and get ahead of me, Shayla. I got you. We'll be there. We're going to get there. I promise. Well, we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to read the passage again, talking about the full armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil... In the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith. With which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation. Thank you, Shayla. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. Always keep on praying for all the saints. And I pray that we have been doing this for one another, that this isn't just lip service, that we actually do. It's still hard for me to believe that people actually don't believe that even Satan exists. It's weird for me. Is it weird for you? Like some people think that and how they rationalize evil. It's, it's about as goofy as this story that I'm going to read to you. Once there was a boxer who was being badly beaten. And he, he's just, he's taking a beating and he's all bloody and he goes over. And, you know, it's at the end of a round and he's going there and he's looking at his trainer. And, and, and the boxer's telling his trainer, he says... Throwing the towel, this guy's just killing me. He's like, he's just, he's going to destroy me. There's no way, I can't even see him. My eyes are swollen shut, I got so much blood. And the trainer looks at him and he says, "Was like, well, what are you talking about? That guy hasn't even hit you all. He hasn't even hit you at all. So the boxer, he's really confused. and He wipes away the blood and he says, well, if that's the case, he's like, somebody keep the eye on the right because somebody's got a left hook and he's been beating me this whole time. The silly thing is, 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 crazy as that is in that illustration, that's how silly it is for me when people don't believe that that the devil exists and that there is evil in the world. And that because of that, the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of God, gives us passages like this because in the day and age that we live in, God doesn't want us to, to live defeated. He wants us to live victoriously. He wants us to know how to battle spiritually so that we can live Victoriously. You see, when we ache for deliverance, escape, or rescue, we're actually crying out for God. When we see the evil in the world, or we experience some pain in our life, or ex- just experience grief, or struggle through addiction, or or we're we're maybe on the outside of somebody else's addiction, and you're trying to figure out what, what is my role in this and how can I help them. Anytime that these terrible things goes on in our world, and they just bring an ache, and it's an ache for deliverance or escape or rescue, and any time that happens, we're actually crying out for God, and sometimes we're not even aware. The presence of mind and the presence of pain is present in the day and age that we live in is to bring our attention to God, our Creator, our Maker. What I want to talk about this morning is the most important thing about your life, and it's not... Your marriage, not your kids, it's not your profession, it's not how much money you have, it's not the neighborhood you live in, it's not even how long you've been connected to this church. It's not about a disease you're struggling with, it's not about your arthritis, it's not about uh, your addiction, it's not about how many divorces you've gone through, it's not about where you are in your recovery. The most important thing about you is do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior or not? Because all of those other things, though they are important, they are not as important as where you will spend eternity. Many of these things, they can add some life while you're here, or they can take away some life. They can take away some years. But if you do not know Jesus, that can take away your eternity, which is significantly more important, obviously. The Apostle Paul borrows in this passage, which we don't even really know this, but the Apostle Paul borrows in this passage from Isaiah 59. I invite you to go there. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17. You're going to see this ache that many of you just wrote on your worship guide. You're going to see this, this need for deliverance. You're going to see the, just the cry out for justice. This cry out for righteousness. In a day and age that, that this was written... There were no prophetic messages anymore. Isaiah would be one, but the people longed for a prophetic message. They longed to hear from God. They were in the midst of so much struggle. They were desperate for that. There was injustice in in their culture in that time. And now, Isaiah 59, starting in verse 9. This is how it reads. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead. We all growl like bears. We moan mournfully like doves. We look for justice but find none for deliverance but is far away. For our offenses are many in your sight and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us. We acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God Fomenting oppression and revolt, uttering lies our hearts have conceived, so justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice and he saw that there was no one he was appalled that there was no one to intervene so his own armed work his own arm worked salvation for him and for his own righteousness sustained him notice this verse 17 he put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak not really sure why, other than saying God did. Not really sure why the Apostle Paul would borrow from this language and he would use this in conjunction with the other bits of armor. Of course, he's is in a prison-like setting, so more than likely he sees Roman guards, so he's just drawing off this analogy. But also, the Apostle Paul, would ha- he had a deep knowledge of the Old Testament, so for him, some things are just probably making sense in his mind, and now he's drawing upon this too. And I just wonder, and it's only a question I have in my mind, but I wonder if he's also reflecting upon Isaiah's time and the bleakness and, and the burden and lack of righteousness and, and just the injustice in Isaiah's time, and he's relaying that to the time that he lives in. But also, again, I'm just, I just wonder these things, and I think it's, it's okay to wonder about the Bible But I just wonder also if in Paul's mind he's thinking about the people who would receive this letter, even us today, of like now making these connections about the armor of God, realizing the day and age that we live in is evil. Very much so like in Isaiah's time. Very much so like in Paul's time. Isaiah 59, 17. I'll repeat this. This will be on the screen. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak Ephesians 6:17 take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god the roman soldier's helmet in their time would be most likely made out of bronze or iron and would be heavy they weren't really interested in comfort as much as protection some would have a face shield, some would not. It's also believed that in that time that they would wrap the inside of the helmet with a, a felt or a sponge just to make the weight of that bearable and make the wearing of that bearable. And it would be very uh, important for them because many of the blows from the enemy would be, the attempt would become at their at their at their brain, at their head. Because if you can inflict damage upon the brain, you can stop them from moving. You can change their direction. You can give them a concussion. You can do different things to cause them to not be in the fight anymore. The Apostle Paul and the Spirit of God is saying, No, put on the helmet of salvation to protect your mind. The mind that you, when you have the mind of Christ, like we talked about last week from First Corinthians, that when we have the mind of Christ, that it's protected with the helmet of salvation when we're in the middle of despair and we're in the middle of of despicable circumstance that we can have the mind of christ that we're protected with the helmet of salvation so that we can keep our wits about us the helmet is important it's vital an illustration would be this in baseball they also wear helmets And they're all different than whenever I was a kid. When I was a kid, they were just in the front. Now they have the face thing, like the thing that goes around, and now it's all a lot more complicated and protecting people. Because I geek out on certain things like this, and I was thinking about baseball and helmets and helmet of salvation. I thought, what is the fastest pitch ever thrown in a Major League Baseball game? And it was 105.8 miles per hour. Yeah, that's humming. And it was in 2010, and the guy's name was Araldus Chapman. And as a matter of fact, the pitch, when it, it came in, it actually was high and inside up on the batter. Pretty crazy, right? Imagine, just play roll this in your mind, if you would. Imagine if Major League Baseball found out that there was asbestos in all the helmets. And, like, you know, we freak out over asbestos, right? Some of you breathed it as kids, and you're fine, others not. I understand, you know. It's like, we, yeah, Everything, asbestos. But imagine, Major League Baseball, they, they come to find out there was asbestos in the helmet. So they said, hey, um, you can't wear these helmets anymore. But you can still play the game until we figure this out. Right? Would the players continue to play the game? No, they would not. Because their oldest Chapman and others would throw at 105.8 miles an hour and could hurt you. Then why would we... Try and live our life without us also donning the helmet of salvation. Because the battles that we're in the middle of impact us. They impact our faith. They impact our journey. Remember what we said about faith last week. Faith was, uh, was an acrostic. And I said faith stands for forgiveness of sins, assurance of salvation. The I is identification as God's kids. The T being triumph over Satan, and the H is hope for deliverance. One of the ways that we, we protect our faith is reminding ourselves with the helmet of salvation that we are indeed in Christ, that we, are, that we have victory over Satan, that we are identified as God's kids, that we have assurance of salvation, that we have been forgiven of our sins, and that because of all these things, we also have a hope for deliverance. The helmet protects our mind from these things. The Apostle Paul, in verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation. And he borrows this this Greek word, dekomai, and it's take means meaning to accept, welcome, or receive from God. Because salvation is a gift from God. It's not of yourselves. It's not of your earnings. If it was of your earning, then the grace would mean nothing. If you had to strive to earn God's love, God would not be the, the God of love that we know him to be. He would be a cruel tyrant wanting you to perform to show that you're worthy of his love. But God so loved the world, not because we were performing, because God is love and he's trying to initiate a, a loving relationship with you. So take, meaning certain things. I'm gonna break down this passage into two main categories. One of which is this Salvation happens at a moment in time. Salvation happens at a moment in time. I've said it in this way we're justified in a moment, we're sanctified through the course of our life and we're glorified at the end of this life when we step into eternity, when we, re- we receive our glorified bodies. But if you're in Christ today, you've been justified, past tense and present tense. You're justified, set apart. Uh, you're in Christ. He's, his, uh, sin, his blood has covered all of your sins, past, present, and future. And now you're also sanctified. That means you're being changed. We're going to get to that in a minute. But salvation happens in a moment. I'll say it in this way. Has anyone ever in here uh, had jury duty? Raise your hand if you've had jury duty. Was that a fun experience for you? I liked it. I kind of liked it. I did. Other than in Georgia, it's not one time. It's actually for a full quarter. So you had to go back time and time and time and time again. I didn't enjoy that part. But it was neat being part of that process. Let's illustrate it in this way. Say that you're you're on jury duty, right? You are you're on your best behavior, you're there, jury duty, and and you're actually being confronted with some details of things that I've done. Okay? So I did these things. Say I was driving 100 miles an hour in a 55. I was in a hurry. Give me a break. And in the midst of me driving 100 miles an hour, I hit a very rare endangered species known as an albino unicorn. Okay? (laughs) Apparently they're... They're really rare, apparently. And I hit it. And so you're, you're there, and it's jury duty. And then I come up there, and they, they go with these charges. And it was like, it was one of those deals that was a slam dunk for everybody in law enforcement. Because you know the, the, the signs you see that, that, you know, speed enforced by aircraft? By the way, has anyone ever seen an aircraft with speed? In, I don't even know. I think it's just signs. But in this case, they actually were. And there was also a speed trap. So there was no way out of it and you're. You are about to press, you're like, you're saying, yes, take it to court. He like, albino unicorn, they're protected. I love those things. Those are amazing. And besides that, he was driving 155, right? And then, so then the idea is that that now you okay for me to go to court. Setting up an illustration here of which we're going to bear out in the word of God here in just a moment. So say in that moment, you put me forward to go to court. I'm there stand in front of the judge. I'm just like, I did it. I did it. I got damaged to my vehicle. was driving fast. Airplane, speed trap, no way out of it. Like Witnesses, yes, I did it. And say that as going in front of the judge, and then the judge says, I sentence you to a $10,000 fine or 30 days in jail. Right? And they say, well, I'll take the fine. But say in that moment, that the person who's actually prosecuting you, the accuser of you, is Satan. But your defense attorney is Jesus. And the judge is Jesus. So in that moment, I'm dead to rights for what I did, but yet... Satan is the accuser. He's the one who's coming at me to accuse me of what I've done. Jesus is my defense attorney, so he's willing to defend me. And the judge is actually Jesus as well. And imagine in that moment, if everything lined out and said, yes, he deserves a $10,000 fine. But then the judge, he sat down on his gavel, and he took his robe off, and he came up, and he says, you did it, son, but I want to pay that $10,000 fine for you. That'd be amazing. Ten have Ten grand? I was in a hurry. We'll break this out scripturally. Hopefully, this illustration will make more sense and become concrete in just a minute. Satan is the accuser, not the judge. Jesus is the one mediator, he's the one who's speaking on your behalf. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6 says this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. Jesus is also the judge. Jesus is also the judge. John 5, The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Going further, Jesus paid our sin debt. Romans 3, 25 and 26 says this, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins and committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. You and I were dead in our dead in our sins. Not worthy of salvation. We, we had no nothing to base upon a good life to show that it was it was enough to to have God's favor. We needed Jesus Christ to mediate on our behalf and between us and the Father. Because our sins separate us from the Father. Not only that, there was a a debt to be paid for our sins, and Jesus paid the debt for our sins. The atoning uh, work of Jesus' blood atoned for our sins. Because for atonement to be true and real and, and for the sin debt to be paid, there had to be a shedding of blood. You see, when we look at these things in in light of God's truth, we start to understand, those of us who are saved, the value of our salvation, the placement of ourselves as being saved, and have a better appreciation for what it is Jesus did for us. This, All of these things as principles and truths or to, be, to help us to be reminded of the helmet of salvation that some of us have received. Have you received the helmet? If you have received the helmet, say, I have. If you're at home, say, I have. I know some have not. But the question as we transition now into the latter part of this is this. Christ died for you, but will you live for him? He died for you, but will you live for him? You see, the helmet of salvation is not simply a hope for what's ahead. It's also a hope for what you already have. For something you already have. So salvation happens in a moment. And salvation is also proven over a length of time. Jesus himself would explain it in a couple different passages, one of which you can look it up later is Matthew Seven seventeen, and he says something very similar in, uh, it's in Luke's gospel, in Luke six forty three, And Jesus is using this illustration about good fruit and bad fruit. And then he says, you will know them by their fruit. So if you were to go up to a lime tree, you would expect to find one. This, to find what? This is a, not a trick question. Help me today. A lime. Thank you. You guys are smart. You would be very surprised. You guys seem a little confused, but it's okay. We're going to get through this together. Like, you'd be very surprised if you went up to a lime tree, like, one day, and you're like, there's an apple there. That is the weirdest thing. Like, you'd be blown away by that, wouldn't you? It's predictable. When you go up to an apple tree, you expect to see an apple. When you go up to a lime tree, you expect to see a lime. Anybody having tacos later? This is great over tacos, just so you know. You see, for us, it's like Jesus says, you'll know them by their fruit. In other words, your salvation will be proved over time. Over time. Another way of conveying this, in the quote that's on the bottom of your worship guide, Matthew Green, he equates change in, in somebody's relationship with Jesus into like grapes and onions, I went to the grocery store for you. Hopefully you appreciate that. He says, some people are changed like the consuming of grapes. I'm going to talk with my mouth full. It's okay. My mom's not here. <laughs> Where well, we're changed in a moment. We see this in some people, not, every, not everyone, but we see this in some people. We see it in the Word of God when 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 Saul was converted to Paul, remember that whole journey. And how many times when do you go through the scriptures and read that and say, "Wow, wish that was my story." Because my story, it seems like it's not so much like consuming a grape. It's it's more deliberate. It takes more time. It's more like the peeling of layers of an onion. Anyone's walk with Jesus is more like the onion. And, and oftentimes it's slow and it's it's methodical. And just when we think we get to one place where, okay, good, now, now I'm where I need to be, then something else happens. And then God says, no, I'm going to take you from where you are, and now we're going to go to a whole other level. And it's, it's a better version of you. It's a more complete version of you. And it's, it's not just small little, even superficial changes at times. Instead, there may be wider changes. And these changes, and then we we get to moments where we're like, oh, my goodness, and then we're finally peeled back to another layer and thinking, now, finally, finally, I'm where I need to be, only to be surprised by God's grace to show us that there's a whole other level that he wants us to get into. And I praise God that there's a whole other level That he wants us to get into. While God does change people at times like consuming of grapes. What I found in my last almost 19 years of of vocational ministry time. Is God changes people over time. And, And it's not as fast as what we'd like. And not in moments that we necessarily agree with. But God takes our pain at times. And transforms that into greater purpose. God can take a disease, a crippling disease and one that will eventually take your life and maybe in days you don't know that but in the middle of that when you have a walk of faith and you bring the light of Jesus in the middle of your suffering you actually work to restore faith in other people because they look at you and they think oh my goodness how can they be so at peace with God and themselves knowing that death is upon them? It's because they've Allowed and invited the Holy Spirit of God to peel back the layer to realize that there's a purpose in the pain. And let's be honest, all change is painful, growing is painful. We're not just talking about disease or grief or those kinds of things. And sadly, as it pertains to the helmet of salvation, Satan has deceived many into thinking they're saved, but they're not. And I don't say this as a gotcha for you, and I don't say this as if one who has the ultimate authority. I say this as one. I'm claiming the authority of the Word of God. Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven In other words, salvation is proven over time. Then he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And Jesus says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. And that's a very sad reality. And I'm not, I'm not concerned with the church up the street. I'm not concerned with the, the capital C church in the world. I'm concerned about your soul. That's what I'm concerned about. I, I was, I've been called to pastor this flock, this family, this church, not another one. So I, I, I come to you just this whole week being just really consumed and been spiritually battling for you to receive this truth, and it being God's truth. Jesus would also say in the same chapter, he would talk about the faulty foundations by which some people put their life on. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Anybody give a testimony this morning about a life built on the rock? Anyone? Anyone help me with this? Anyone? Got any, do I have like three spirit-filled people who would, who would echo that, that they have a life based upon the rock? There's six. That's fine. I'll work with that. I was hoping for more. Many people also believe that they're saved until it's too late. So not only do many people believe they're saved, Satan has convinced them that they're saved, but they're not being changed, so they're actually not saved. They're not bearing the fruit of that salvation because if you are in Christ, you will bear the fruit of being in Christ. Also, same chapter, or excuse me, same book, different chapter. In Matthew 13, Jesus also talks about uh, this illustration of wheat and weeds And Jesus goes on to teach, he says, the wheat and weeds we should, he wants them to grow together. The disciples were were kind of talking about this, and they were curious as to what it was that Jesus was fully talking about. And Jesus says, we need to allow the wheat and weeds to grow together. Because when they're when they're young, they may not, when, when somebody's young in their faith, not mature, they may not be a whole lot different than before they got saved. They may not be a whole lot different. So Jesus says, we let the wheat and the weeds in their, in their immaturity, uh, the wheat and the weeds grow together. And the wheat is an illustration for somebody who is about the kingdom of God. They're a child of God. And the weeds are people or the children of the evil one. And Jesus says, no, we're, we're not just going to just pluck them out Or earlier in their stage, he says, because if we pluck them out, we might actually uproot some people who have true faith. Instead, what we're going to do is, even in their immature state, they may look the same. But then he continues, Matthew 13, 37, as he's explaining this parable. He said, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them is the devil. Many people will, they can be a part of a church. But as someone matures in their faith, they should be different than the unbelievers in their proximity. They shouldn't look the same. They should grow to look different because it is Christ's work in them. As he's peeling back the onion Of your life, as he's as he's taking your life and taking you to the next level, it is still you, the essence of you, but it's also the new you. The apostle Paul would talk about that the old you has gone away, and now it's the new you in Christ. And the new you doesn't look like the weeds that were around you when you're immature in your faith. Salvation is proven over time. True disciples experience freedom from living by the truth. Jesus said this in Matthew 8, or excuse me, in John 8, 31 through 32. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. True freedom is not getting what you want. True freedom is, not, is, is, is finding peace in the middle of life's troubles. True freedom is finding contentment in Jesus and less desire for the offerings of the world. True freedom is victory over sin. Victory knowing that you're free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin, free from temptation, free from deception. Let me just ask you a couple questions, friends. Do you have a secret sin, or are you continually repenting? Do you have a capacity to hold on to an offense or do you feel the continual need to reconcile? Do you have a reflex reaction to reminders of personal sin? Do you battle a critical spirit towards people who appear devoted to God? All of these things point to the true placement of your heart. True disciples also remain faithful to Christ. There have been many so-called Christians who've, who've deconstructed and celebrated stages of de- deconstruction over the last three or four years. And those who have deconstructed and never returned to Christ, I wonder if this true. Uh, this passage is not true of them. 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they belonged to us, they would have remained with us. For their going showed that none of them belonged to us. After all, you will know them by their fruit. Are they changing? I'm going to end with the story and this this thing to think about. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. If your faith hasn't changed you, it hasn't saved you. And your conversion doesn't have to look like the Apostle Paul's, to where it's like your old life is gone, your new life's come, and now you're on a completely different directory and trajectory, and everything's different. Like, no, no, the Holy Spirit works. Sometimes it's slowly methodically, even painfully, peeling the layers back. There's a purpose in in every part of that journey. So when I was a kid, our family, some members of our family went to Washington, D.C., and we took the subway everywhere. And we weren't there for very long, so we really had to maximize our time, and we were on and off the subway all the time. And the subway always worked in in a certain way. You'd stand at the door, you'd you'd cross it, the door would open, you'd go in, you'd turn around, and then the door would stay, stay open, the door would close, and you'd take off. It was just rinse and repeat. Open, close, go. Open, close, go. Over and over and over. It got kind of boring, actually. But then there was this time when all of our Family members were standing there inside the subway and my little cousin, so patterned to what the the doors of the subway did, the doors of the subway opened while we were still on the subway and he stepped off the subway while everybody else was in. And in a moment, my aunt grabbed him by the shirt, jerked him inside the subway and the doors closed and we took off. That that much time, and, and who knows what we would have done. You see, God moves when it's time, not when we're ready. God operates on his own time. What is God doing in you right now? Do you have a walk with Jesus? Would you honestly say, based upon the word of God preached to you today, that you have the helmet of salvation? Are you saved at all? And maybe second to that, maybe for you, the whole spiritual streaking thing stood out to you, not because of the the graphic nature of it, but just thinking, oh my goodness, I've just been clinging to the salvation, but I, but I haven't learned how to battle at all. Maybe today's a day that things become different for you. I invite you to stand, friends. You know, over the last two weeks, we've had two people give their life to Jesus, and one of them's right there. Last Sunday, Jean gave her life to Jesus right after Discover Calvary. And tears gave her heart to God. She thought she knew some things and then she had the reality when she was convert, just convinced by looking at the scriptures that she needed to be saved. know the truth about you as we prepare to sing this song if you would like to receive the gift of salvation and maybe right now you you question your salvation you don't even know that you're saved i invite you to come forward there are people who'd love to pray with you share scriptures with you to help you maybe you are saved but you just need assurance of salvation we would love to help you in whatever way we can don't let this moment go by Take up the helmet of salvation. Begin the steps of God changing you, putting on the helmet of salvation, so you too can live victoriously. I just sense that somebody in the room is struggling with shame right now. They're ashamed to to make public about how they feel because maybe they were deceived. shame and now they're unwilling to come forward and admit that publicly just for the sense of shame there's no shame when we bring things to the altar there's no shame there's only victory there's only healing there's only peace there's only the power of god there's only the family of god surrounded around you encouraging you loving you letting you know that you're not alone there's no shame when you come to the altar sometimes what we do is we get stuck in our seats because we feel the burden of shame like we should be further along than what we are and yet we know that we need to make public about where we are so that we can go forward and yet in our shame we stay in our seats. I just want you to know there's no shame in admitting faults none there's only victory when you confess it to god when you turn from your sinfulness you admit to him what you've done and who you are he gives you a new name he gives you a new hope a new destiny a new future a new peace no shame he takes that away though we do know how the story ends we still battle today amen going to continue to sing. If you need to come forward, come forward. And if you don't, if you have assurances of your salvation, I want you to sing this song like you mean it. I want you to sing this song like you're of the redeemed. I want you to sing this song as if you're a child of Almighty God. I want you to sing this song as if God can hear it, because He can. Some of us are claiming victory. Some need the victory. Whether we're praying or singing, we're not going to leave until God says it's time.